0: The war on the ground between Israel and Hamas continues, but this is always and also a information war and in the social media space, especially. Today, we talk to one of the world's leading authorities on tech, social media, and this war and how it's playing out in the wider world. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian, usually in London, this time in New Hampshire.
1: And I'm Yannick Levy of Channel 12, still in Tel Aviv. Unholy, two Jews on the news. New Hampshire, sir, it isn't yours anymore. Didn't you get the memo? What are you doing there? Please tell us.
0: It's a quadrennial uh, ritual for me to come to New Hampshire. I've been doing it for presidential elections going back, well, decades now, right back to the 1990s. (laughs) Usually it's an absolute carnival of democracy, this sort of cavalcade of candidates. You are bumping into them in diners, in high school gyms, in people's backyards. It's real retail politics. That's the tradition. Uh, I'm afraid to say this time it is slightly different. And that's because on the Democratic side, there's no real contest. I mean, there are a couple of fringe candidates, but Joe Biden, the incumbent, is running again. And so there's no contest there. And on the Republican side, by the time I arrived, it was down really to three. It's like the old Agatha Christie story. And then there were three. Chris Christie had dropped out. Vivek Ramaswamy had dropped out after uh, Donald Trump's massive win in Iowa at the start of the week. So there's just three, and Ron DeSantis of Florida is barely campaigning here, and it's therefore down to Nikki Haley. So we're going to a lot of Nikki Haley events because there's not much else going on. Donald Trump doesn't really do the sort of you know meet and greet in pancake houses retail politics he just swoops in in his jet does a big rally and swoops out again and it works for him he did the same in iowa and he won that thumping majority there so it's very different um it, the weather is as it always has been in fact it's particularly snowy and icy here and i've got all my uh you know snow boots and all the rest of it as i walk around but the people of new hampshire themselves do feel a little bit cheated they feel they haven't quite got this four-yearly ritual that they really cherish. They sort of regard themselves as, as carrying out a duty. And this time, in some ways, they feel they've been denied that.
1: Yeah, well, anyone of my sort of generation cannot think about a, Demo- you know, a primary in New Hampshire, and not think about Jed Bartlett. But of course, that was the Democratic Party. And you're with the Republicans right now. And that's what you're focusing on. Obviously, Israel, a big issue uh, on that side of the political map as well.
0: Yeah, it's amazing, really, to consider that they are in the middle of their own important stage of the presidential contest. And yet, as soon as I put on the TV, just randomly, actually, on one channel, they were interviewing uh, one of the released hostages live from Israel, whose husband uh, is still a prisoner hostage in Gaza. Uh, that was on one channel. You click over to another channel and there was Bernie Sanders speaking on behalf of a group of Democratic senators who are putting pressure on Joe Biden to in turn put more pressure, as they see on Israel, uh, responding to a report from the World Food Programme saying that uh, uh, Gaza is on the brink of a potential famine with uh, a shortage of food particularly reaching as they see it, hundreds of thousands of children. And these Democratic senators, led by Bernie Sanders, saying, look, Joe Biden puts tons of pressure on on Israel, but it doesn't seem to get anywhere. Uh, They keep leaning on Netanyahu, but without effect, was um, Sanders's message. And interesting coming from him, because he's somebody who has paid a price, in a way, on the left of his party, uh, because he has supported Biden in Biden's support for Israel. But he's saying on this, uh, on the question of food and so on, uh, Biden and Israel need to do much more. I just thought it was interesting that even in when there was a lot else going on in the United States, there's still this degree of attention and interest uh, in this war and indeed in Israel.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting, and we'll listen to Scott Galloway, you know, tech and business guru later in our program. He talks about the fact that Israel is. Uh, the the uh, strongest story in the that creates a general divide, a generational divide in the United States, it says it's it's worse than it was with the Vietnam War, uh, and that's telling you something maybe about that sort of split screen of channels that you were watching while you just uh, arrived in New Hampshire. So can I drag you from the icy cold? Uh, New Hampshire back into the um, mud of the Middle East. Would that be okay? Because we still are uh, here in the, yeah, we're still in the uh, uh, day, as you said, 104 of the war. Uh, It is Thursday that we uh, record. Safe to say. Hamas has not yet been defeated uh, militarily by the way right after the Israeli military announced that Hamas's rocket capability has been significantly weakened they launched dozens of rockets over the southern city of Netivot growing feeling among i would say generally the Israeli public that the end game is not entirely uh, clear, but we are in the stage that has been much talked about, right? The third stage of the war in which fewer troops are in the Gaza Strip. But still, it is also very clear that the sort of underground fortifications that have been built by Hamas over the years um are creating a very prolonged war for the uh, Israeli military. You mentioned this at the top of the uh, show, and I think that it's part of the tragedy of what has been going on here, and that is the fact that the issue of uh, the hostages has become a heated political issue in Israel, generally speaking. Um, broad brush strokes here, but generally speaking, the Israeli center left is saying, stop the war. Uh, We have to get the hostages out and then we will continue the war. And the other side of the political map, map, again, generally speaking, saying we have to crush Hamas. That is the only way to get the hostages out. It's very clear. A few things are clear here. One, it's urgent, right? If something is clear from the testimonies of the people coming back, these people don't have forever. They need to be uh, um, released. And the other thing is, there's not a clear deal on the table. I mean, the fact that I just said that there's a political argument, it's not like some one side is saying, take the deal, the other side is saying, don't take the deal. There's not a clear deal on the table. Uh, so it isn't, it isn't very um, clear where this is heading. It is clear that there are 136 hostages, most of them still alive, that again, every day, every hour, is completely urgent for that.
0: Well, we have talked uh, for a long time on the podcast about the notion that the war is not being solely conducted in terms of what's in Israel's you know, national strategic interests, that the man in charge, Prime Minister Netanyahu, is also thinking politically. Well, that case became sharper uh, this week with a front-page story in Haaretz, the Haaretz newspaper, by a friend of the podcast, Amos Harel, who reported that to put it very gently, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is in some ways ambivalent about securing an immediate release of all the hostages because he knows that the moment the hostages are released, that symbolically, emotionally will be understood as the end of the war. And once it's the end of the war, the pressure will be to, at the very least, go to elections, a change of political leadership. He can see the same polls we can. His numbers are very low. He seems to be on course for a defeat and therefore wants to postpone that date with destiny as long as he can, even if the implication of this report suggests, even if that means delaying the day the hostages are released. That puts into very sharp focus this notion that he is not thinking of Israel's best interest. he is thinking of himself and the staying in that prime ministerial seat. And we should remind people that's not just because he likes being prime minister, it's because there are corruption charges on which he is on trial. And being prime minister is the one surefire way for him to stay out of jail. And if that is affecting his decision making in terms of releasing the hostages, that then shows what kind of pass we have reached.
1: We we should add that, you know, the whole political um, arena is geared up to waiting for one man, and that man is Benny Gantz. The moment that he leaves this government, which he joined to you know, run the war in a way that Israelis will give confidence in this government, the minute he leaves the government will be that cue that says... Uh, now we are uh, heading for elections, now we might be heading for vast demonstrations against this government. Even Miki Zohar, who's a very loyal Netanyahu supporter in the Likud, said this week, if we will be left with a coalition of 64, the original Netanyahu coalition, in a war, that will be a very bad situation. Now you have Gadi Eisenkot, who's, you know, in many ways, Benny Gantz's right-hand man. He was chief of staff of the military. He also lost his son, Gal, and his nephew in the fighting in Gaza. He's giving a, an exclusive interview. He he gave an exclusive interview to Ilana Dayan uh, on uh, Israeli television this week. And he said, essentially, we have to have a major pause in the war, in the fighting to bring back the hostages. He says there's a problem of confidence in this government. We need to go to elections. This is something that uh, he says. And we have to notice that that is the, you know, all of this is happening when this is in very much in, uh, in the foreground.
0: Yeah, and very uh unlikely, vanishingly unlikely that Gaddy Eisencott speaks without uh the blessing understanding of Benny Gantz. So that suggests insight into where they are thinking, that they are thinking this is the next move and more imminent than some might have anticipated. So that's where the politics is. Um the wider world has been, will certainly be paying attention to that. It's been paying attention to the war from the start and, in a way, conducting its own war, the battle online, the battle on TV screens and on newspaper front pages and on people's phones. This is a war that has reached right into uh, people's social media streams in a way, perhaps uh, unlike any other. The foremost uh, authority in the world, in a way, on this, where these things meet is our guest for this week.
1: Hello, Scott Galloway, welcome back to Unholy.
2: Uh, Thanks for having me on it.
1: We thought long and hard how to introduce you, but then remembered that you have your own AI database, which processes everything you've ever said and written, I believe. So we asked your AI database, We're all hosting Scott on our podcast. How should we introduce him? Would you like me to read out what it said?
2: (laughs) Uh, No, no.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I'll just, I'll read you out my own introduction. Okay. I will mention that your AI introduction does end with, please mention I'm the world's greatest dad. So that we have to say, but wow. besides that, we will say that you are a professor of marketing at NYU, host of Prof G Podcast and Pivot with Kara Swisher. Your latest book is Adrift, America and a 100 Charts, serial entrepreneur, best-selling author, one of the most thought-provoking people in business, tech, and media. That's my introduction. Nice. not the ai perfect so scott again thank you so much for talking to us and and obviously we'd love to dive in uh, first and foremost into uh, the events of october 7th and and, and the repercussions for israel and, and for the world it does seem like, uh, to us especially, uh, from the Israeli point of view, yeah. to me, from the Israeli point of view, that there very quickly the world has moved into this both sidism of the conflict. And I wonder if we're talking about this on how things are perceived, we're not talking about the battlefield, how has is Israel moved from you know uh, suffering this horrific attack and now, three months after, needing to defend itself against charges of genocide?
2: So first off, I, I think that a lot of folks in the west and specifically jews have been absolutely um so we're horrified by what happened on october 7th and i think we've been not horrified but even more surprised what what happened on october 7th was 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 horrific but when you look back the fact that it it happened isn't that shocking surrounded by enemies people who's, or a terrorist organization whose only constitutional element is the extermination of Jews. So it's not surprising that they would try to do this. What has been most shocking for me has been, you know, that's that adage that two-thirds of an iceberg's mass is below the surface. If you had said to me growing up as an atheist, but who was raised um, culturally Jewish, I, I grew up in West Los Angeles, my mother is Jewish. I've always felt some some connection to Israel, not a lot. I have family there, but I would describe myself as a very westernized Jew atheist. And if someone had said, and I have Jews, Jewish friends who said, anti-Semitism is everywhere. And I, I, I didn't believe it. I thought, come on, man. I mean, we're beyond that. The world has progressed beyond that. You're being paranoid. And I didn't really believe that anti-Semitism was a real issue in the U.S., and then you find that the anti-Semitism was 99% below the surface, and this brought it out. And it was just shocking to see what I saw as more systemic, fairly black and white racism and bigotry against Israel and specifically Jews bubble up that I just was not expecting. I, I, it struck me, as just so, so shocking, and I was just absolutely flummoxed. On a broader level, if you were to say, all right, well, what has happened? What what leads to um, the nation of South Africa having the, the temerity or the, the just the gall to bring charges of genocide against Israel? On a bigger picture, I think that, that what has happened is sort of there's three or four legs of the stool here. The first is – and I, I just want to be um, – Try to be as sober and as honest as possible, even if it upsets some of your listeners. I don't think Israel has draped itself in glory over the last 30 or 40 years. I think it's gone from being the David to the Goliath. And that is whether it's the what the West perceives as the dismantling of many of your democratic foundations, whether it's the prime minister and a government that is seen as corrupt, whether it's imagery that you could argue fairly or unfairly depicts Israel as being uh unethical and maybe even inhuman towards the residents of gaza we can have a much longer argument around what's true or not but i think that's the perception globally that you've gone from the good guys the 67 war 72 one of my first images was munich and 70 percent of people my age support israel and then over the last 40 or 50 years that has changed dramatically And now people under the age of 25 in the United States, uh, it's 20% support Israel. So the generational divide between boomers and Gen Z is greater on Israel than it was on Vietnam. It's it's, it's literally greater. The generational divide is greater than it has almost been on any issue. And so, one, I think, uh, just to be blunt, Israel has made it difficult to think of them as the good guys. I don't think they've managed their image well. You can argue – what the reality is but the perception is israel's reality and the perception again is is that they're not no longer the good guys too in the united states we have done a really good job of trying to reconcile with our history and highlight that there are certain groups that have been persecuted uh, whether it's non-whites or lgbtq and it's important that we acknowledge it such that we can maintain our American values and provide people with better opportunities and live up to what is, you know, the original founding father's vision. I think you could argue it's gone overboard. And that is you have progressives who feel, and I feel like I felt I fell into this camp of identity politics for the last 10 years, where you're so angry about the wrongs of yesterday uh, that, okay, there's now laws against this. Most of the pe- real perpetrators of these terrible biases and racism and oppression are dead. But young people are so outraged about it, they go on the hunt for what I'd call fake racists. They go on the hunt for trying to find the perpetrators of this. And what you're dealing with in America is for the first time, people under the age of 18 are, now the majority are non-whites. And the easiest shorthand for kind of identifying an oppressor, quite frankly, is two elements, how white you are and how rich you are. And I think that, uh, fairly or unfairly, there is no nation or group of people that are categorized in shorthand as being wider and richer than Israelis. And then the third thing, and this sounds a little conspiracy theory or paranoid, but it doesn't mean I'm wrong. You are where you spend your time. And people under the age of 25, when surveyed, said if they were given all media or TikTok as a choice, they would choose TikTok. And I believe that it would be in TikTok's best interests to divide America internally, uh, TikTok is influenced, if not controlled, by the CCP. In America, we have a PSYOPS division of the armed services that purposely tries to spread propaganda for pro American interests. And effectively, the CCC has developed and implanted a neural jack in the wet matter of almost every person under the age of 30 in America. And I believe, and I realize this sounds paranoid that they would be stupid not to put their thumb on the scale of content that divides America internally. And so when you go on TikTok, I believe you will see a disproportionate amount of pro-Hamas and anti-Israel content. Because I believe the CCP says we cannot, and I'll finish up here, we cannot beat America militarily. We cannot beat them economically. But we have strategic interests in weakening them. And the way to weaken your enemy is to atomize them. So I believe there are a lot of bad actors, including the GRU, who has a vested interest in getting the West to take its eye off the ball and focus on this conflict instead of Ukraine-Russia. So I believe that there are a lot of bad actors weaponizing porous social media platforms, This uh, what I believe is uh, ill or incorrect, ignorant view that Israel uh, is conflated and Jews are conflated with oppressors. And also, this general notion over the last 50 years that Israel is no longer the good guys. And it has resulted in this perfect storm of a level of bigotry and racism you have just, I haven't seen in my lifetime. I've never, if I went on the campus of NYU where I teach, and I went into the square and I held up a Confederate flag and I said, lynch the blacks. I had a sign that said lynch the blacks. I started chanting lynch the blacks. Or I started chanting burn the gays. My NYU ID would be shut off by close of business that day. I would be fired. There would be no, no need for context. Context would not be required. And I would never work in academia again. And the fact that you can say that about a group and have um, university presidents who are well-educated and esteemed have trouble condemning in uncertain terms that action just gives you a sense for how this this groundswell of anti-semitism has built a much broader much deeper base in america than any of us anticipated i I have been shock doesn't even begin to describe what i have seen in the u.s i'm not as familiar with it i'm in i'm in london right now i've seen similar sentiments here but i think there's been this perfect storm that has led to um just an outspring of anti-semitism the likes of
0: which i've never thought was imaginable in the west So much in that answer to to dive into. Um, One thing I'm interested in is the fact you're sitting in London and whether you now, in some ways, see the United States more clearly for being away from it, or whether, in some ways, you've got the kind of European sense of this that we've all been living with for many, many decades and the US has sort of caught up with. Because some of the sentiments you've described were more common for a while in Europe, and people looked across to the United States where there was the support for Israel was more solid. I wonder if, in a sense, the US, you feel, has sort of caught up with European attitudes. But but putting all that in the the pot, I mean, the TikTok point, though, that you make, and you've been one of the first, actually, to present the stats that say this isn't just a hunch on your part, the, the... Sort of as it were, pro Hamas content outnumbers pro Israel content by ten to one. I think I think that's documented. You mentioned the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. What can be done about that? Because I think a lot of people feel a sense of powerlessness when confronting with this platform that is so huge and so big.
2: Well, I think we can do. We can bring symmetry to our trade policy, and that is, China would never allow and hasn't a U.S. influenced media platform to operate in the United States. They let Google and they let U.S. media platforms in for just long enough, specifically Google, such that they can steal their intellectual property. They then kick them out, prop up a, a local entrepreneur, and capture that value internally. And I got to be honest, I think it was the smart strategy. Uh, you know, what, look what's happened to uh, Italian newspapers and media companies and unemployment in Italy by, by letting Google and Meta into, <laughs> into Italy. You got to admire that they've said, no, thank you. We're, we're going to steal your IP and we're going to prop up a local entrepreneur. What what can be done is to reciprocate the same trade policy and to ban TikTok. I just don't think this, I think this is an easy one. If the CCP owned NBC, the BBC, Sky, HBO, Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and Netflix, would we be okay with that? Well, they do for people under the age of 25. It's called TikTok. And the problem is people my age don't understand how much time young people are spending on this platform. And I was at the White House about a month ago. They're banned from being on it, so I think they don't have a sense for what is actually going on on this platform. If I go on TikTok, within a few minutes, you can go down a rabbit hole, and that rabbit hole uh, it just immediately starts taking you, as far as I can tell, to pro-Hamas content. Now, it it could be a few things. It could be that social media is just doing what social does and that it tries to identify who you are and it immediately throws you to the one of the polls and puts you in a hermetically sealed echo chamber with little real nuance or conversation. It could, in fact, be that people under the age of 25 have come to their own conclusions that creates empathy for Hamas and animosity towards Israel and that the TikTok just reflects that. I think it's more than that. I think if you look at the ratio of pro-Hamas to pro-Israel, anti-Israel content on TikTok versus meta, I think you see that something is going on here, that there are external forces weighing in. And where I always come back to this, it's what we would do. I think the CCP would be stupid not to be doing this. I think the Mossad would have a field day with TikTok depositioning their enemies. This is what we do in a modern world where we realize that propaganda, that no war can be, won without public support, and no war can be lost without public support. So what do we do? Simple. I think we ban TikTok. I think we force them to spin it to U.S. investors and interests. Otherwise, we have to get comfortable with the notion that we are going to have the CCP have dramatic influence over tomorrow's civic, business, military, uh, and nonprofit leaders uh, in the United States. It strikes me as just, um, you know, a fairly straightforward argument that we should ban TikTok unless they spin it to U.S. interests.
1: Is it that at all plausible? I mean, it looks like so many people have kind of accepted the fact that state actors are manipulating social media and are okay with that. I mean, how plausible is it that, you know, legislators would shut it down um, if this indeed is, is the case and this is what they're doing?
2: It seemed more plausible six months ago, and now... Mm-hmm. So the U.S. has so many assets. We have unprecedented prosperity and resources. We're creative intellectual property, technically very sophisticated, and I think the optimism of of people in the United States, you know, we will fire a gigantic heavy rocket into the atmosphere and it blows up and we think that's progress. And we're like, okay, next. You know, we, we take risks like no one else. We're willing to put hundreds of millions of dollars into a company that has robots making pizzas which just no one else is willing to do this shit maybe you have a little bit of that in israel you're getting more of it in the uk but there's no one that's more batshit crazy optimistic than the united states and it results in some stuff ends up being crazy genius our weakness is that we're very short term and we're like a cat chasing a dot so look at what russia's doing in the ukraine they're just waiting us out they're just waiting us out they can't beat us but they can they can outweigh us they can outlast us And already there's now, like, we're getting tired and fatigued, and I think Putin is hoping, and there's, you know, unfortunately, I think he might be right, that if I just wait long enough, they'll get sick of this and they'll move on. And I'm willing to kill 100,000 of my countrymen every year have the economy go into the tank. The, the, this is nothing compared to what we as Russia have endured. Nothing. This is a walk in the park. The U.S., if your inflation is at 4% instead of 2%, there's practically a riot in the streets. We're we want to kick out the administration. We don't, we're not, we're not long-term thinkers. We seem to have lost our focus on the threat of TikTok. Six months ago, I thought that it was gonna be Uh, spun or banned and now we're so obsessed with the election inflation what's going on in the middle east what's going on in ukraine that it seems to have gone on the back burner i also think just politically the biden administration has one big problem and it gets worse every day and that's his age and there's nothing they can do about it and to go after tiktok makes you seem a little bit older it's kind of buying a buick it's it makes you seem just a, not quite as down with the, with the youngins. And so I think they've said this isn't the, the beach we want to die on right now. So I hope Biden gets reelected and that his, his tech folks uh, and his surgeon general who's thinking about how to start to zero in again a return to the threat that is TikTok.
0: Let's go back to this question of um Israel's standing and brand if you like and how it shifted. This it didn't happen overnight. This hasn't happened the last 3 months and uh, uh the war in Gaza. This is a long process you said the shift from David to Goliath which I think puts it very well. And and I would agree with you that 67 is the starting point. To what extent can that be dealt with by the usual and I want to almost, you know, say the tricks, the techniques of branding, of, you know, um, of sort of corporate identity, that field. And um, to what extent is it about the product and meaning the reality of Israel? I'm thinking about even the war that's ongoing. A lot of people have talked about messaging and communications. I think the point you made about TikTok is is that kind of media, but also people talk about you know, pressuring the conventional media, the mainstream TV stations and so on. Or is it the actual reality, the actual product? And just one example that I've noticed, CNN did something on it, and Andrew Sullivan, the blogger, wrote something about this, wants to be sympathetic to Israel's case after October 7th, but says, just to pick one example, you know, the dropping of these £2,000 bombs, Israel has dropped hundreds that people estimate in the last three months. The United States in its whole battle with Islamic State 2017 dropped one and then had an investigation. If those are the actual sort of facts of the situation, all the branding geniuses and marketing gurus in the world, could they be able to spin this any better than they already are? Or is the reality, the product, the problem?
2: I, I think there are issues. I think that Israel has given its, its enemies, if enemy is perception, too much to work with. And that is something that Israel, as a sovereign nation, has to decide. Uh, I was heartened by, I believe it was the s- Supreme Court overturned the, the attempt to dismantle some of those rights. I think Netanyahu has been a disaster for Israel's impression, uh, perception abroad. I hope he is kicked out of office. And as I look at the big conflicts and security failures over the last 50 years in Israel, Israel usually does have a reckoning. They usually deal with it, and then they do have a reckoning. And I hope that happens here. And I hope Israel continues to be this outpost of democracy in the Middle East that stands singular and alone. I think that from a branding standpoint, I think a lot of it is awareness and spokespeople. We're outnumbered. When there's a a protest in favor of Israel, it it gets a good turnout in, in London. It is an overwhelming turnout for pro-Palestine, because quite frankly, there's 4 million Arabs in the United Kingdom, there's 200,000 Jews. It's either 200,000 or 300,000. I mean, some of it is a numbers game. So unless Jews do a better job of, in a thoughtful way, educating people about the reality, you just mentioned Andrew Sullivan's article. I found that article so repugnant and full of bullshit and lies, it made me Want, I, I felt like I could pass out because I think Andrew Sullivan is an intelligent guy. Let's talk a little bit about actual conflict and wars. The Japanese killed 2,200 servicemen at Pearl Harbor. I mean, the, the, the history of the world is shaped in some instances by a country with more prosperity, more technical innovation, and industrial might invading another country. When another country thinks they have can get advantage by uh, attacking it, you risk them attacking back and winning. When Japan took that risk and killed 2,200 service people in Pearl Harbor. We went on to kill uh, 2.5 or 3 million Japanese, including 100,000 people in one night. And the condition wasn't... There wasn't people calling to protect the hospitals of Hiroshima or Nagasaki. The conditions were simple. Unconditional surrender or we keep killing your people. That's called war. When al-Qaeda came in and killed 2,800 Americans... We went on to kill 400,000 people in Afghanistan and Iraq. And it was very simple Al Qaeda is swept out of power, and so is Hussein. There was no, what we did to Mosul is very comparable to what's happening in Gaza, if not more brutal. If you look at the number of fatalities of civilians relative to enemy combatants, Israel is being more targeted, or what you would call less inhumane than American forces were in World War II. Most definitely what Allied forces, how they treated Germany. When we continued to carpet bomb Dresden in Hamburg, the generals were asked by the press, "Like we've won, the war's over, Germany is done, we've won. Why do we continue? to drop bombs on civilian targets in big German cities and kill civilians. And the response was, and I'm not saying it's the right response, but it's been the response that the West has given and most nations act on is, they need to know that they lost. And so with all these cries of inhuman treatment, this is war, war by virtue of it is inhuman. And when you go into another nation with a superior military infrastructure and you commit the type of slaughter that was committed, on October the 7th, you are inviting war and all its inhumanity. And Israel is the only country that has been told or the, the rest of the world just assumes they're not allowed to win a war. They can fight back to a truce. But unlike every other Western nation that's been attacked and has responded and asked and demanded for unconditional surrender, Israel isn't isn't allowed to do that. I, and it affects everybody, this, this double standard. The White House, CNN, college campuses— we must save the hospital. We must end this war. What's going on here is inhuman. It's very simple. Hamas puts down their weapons and releases the hostages, and guess what, the war's over. And it doesn't strike me that the West is, perceives it that way, it doesn't call for that type of, the way we would call for that unconditional surrender in every war that we have prosecuted when we've been attacked. The double standards here are just striking. And some of it might be that it's kind of the first war that's broadcast on TikToks where people are seeing up close the horrors of war. You know, we killed hundreds of thousands of people. Bashar al-Assad kills 250,000 Muslims. No one gives a shit, right? There is a a senior Iranian uh, memorial for a senior Iranian. A hundred, I think a hundred plus people are killed in a bomb attack. Front page, Israel, the Jews did it. Oh, wait. Oh, wait, ISIS took responsibility for it. Oh, it's just Muslims killing Muslims. It, it just strikes me that what the West has decided, what folks on college campuses, the Western media, CNN, the New York Times, everybody have all decided, is that the last true Christians on earth, the last people to call, that really should call on their better souls, that shouldn't have a disproportionate response, that shouldn't ask for surrender, the last true Christians is embodied by Christ should be Jews, but the rest of us get to commit actual war. I don't even see the media and people who think of themselves as pro-Israel, even I think are in touch with just how out of control, inconsistent, and one-sided their perception in the words and the nomenclature they use around this war. If on a proportionate, a per capita basis, If Mexico had been taken over by a drug cartel that was brutal and killing people left and right and had this weird, this constitution that they were there to kill um, black people or they were there to kill uh, evangelical Christians. They had this fundamental view that these people were evil and they were committed to the extermination of these people. And then they found weakness in the southern border and they incurred into Texas And on a per capita basis, these are real numbers, they slaughtered 35,000 people. They killed every family, every student, every faculty member, everyone that goes to a preschool near the University of Texas, Austin. And then they took, and then they took, okay, four or 5,000 people. They took the freshman class from Southern Methodist University hostage and took them back over the border. What would America do? Would, would people be calling on the White House to save the Monterey, the Playa del Carmen hospital? Would they be calling for grace and truce of America? Do you realize what we would do to those people? And so it, it, there is a standard levied on Israel that is levied on no other nation. And it's absurd for any nation to even use the word genocide— <laughs> And, and bring it in front of the UN. It absolutely undermines the credibility of the UN, and they would even entertain this. I mean, people don't understand. Fratricide, patricide, these words have actual meaning. Genocide is you're targeting an ethnic group for elimination and extermination. Israel could do that in about two weeks if they wanted to do it.
0: They could do that. They're not doing it. Just so that people don't write in, it is 3.8 million Muslims in the UK and about 380,000 Arabs in the.
2: Excuse UK. me, thank oh, you for saying UK. that.
0: Yeah,
1: I, I was going to pick up on on that thread after uh, October seventh. I think there are a lot of shocking things that Israelis have seen, not only you know being uh, under this uh, investigation by by the UN, but but also the the wave of I'd actually actually call it a tsunami of anti semitism uh, hitting uh, the shores of the United States. And and I want to focus on that a little bit. I, I guess. I wanted to hear from you, before we even get into college campuses, obviously, there's a lot to say about that. You know, you have had so many interactions with the Fortune 500 companies and tech and business. How prevalent is anti-Semitism? And how, do you know of any, you know, influential people today that are afraid to speak up because of that?
2: I, I, to be honest, I don't see it in corporate America. I I, mm. I, I work with uh, this is an arrogant thing to say, but I work at the highest levels of big multinational corporations. I d- just saw an intolerance for an intolerance. I didn't. I never experienced or witnessed, and people don't think I'm Jewish, last name Galloway. Um, people have been shocked through this to find out that I'm Jewish. I've never really seen or experienced anti-Semitism. I don't see it in corporate America. That, and when I saw it, it erupt the way it erupted across the media in the United States, most corporations are... They're sort of too busy making money to be bigoted in my view now. I don't, a few of them still manage, but you know, I, I would argue that corporations, and I think this is wonderful, they don't lean left, they don't lean right, they lean green, they're really focused on money. And there are now so many laws and you can get so shamed and you can be so beaten up in the media if you're perceived that I would argue they've almost gone too far that oftentimes you end up with companies that are ossified and afraid to do anything uh, because they're afraid to be accused of being um, uh, racially insensitive. I have not, I did not experience that in corporate America, but I just want to go back to the comment earlier about what needs to be done. I am shocked and incredibly disappointed at how few Jews are speaking out. Where are the Jews? <laughs> I mean, we, we, we have one of the great victories of Jewish culture is that people value education, a real success in powerful industries. Where the fuck are they? I, if I see Deborah Messing or Jessica Seinfeld on Instagram talking, they're the only – there's literally a handful of Jews as far as I can tell
0: speaking out. What do you put that down to, that reluctance, do you think? What is that about? I, I, I've to, I, I know what you're talking about. What do you think it's down to? Uh, 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 one word, downloads.
2: I'm My podcast, Prop G, appeals to young people. My downloads are significantly down. Uh, I have been very outspoken on this issue. A lot of my young viewers do not agree with me. They are turned off by my views, and they have stopped listening. In one week, this is not an exaggeration, One week when I went on, I think I'm getting, I don't want to say leverage, that's the wrong word, but because I have a platform and because I think I'm seen as a moderate politically and I'm not seen as quote-unquote hardcore Jewish, most people didn't know I was Jewish, I'm getting invited on a lot of podcasts like this. And I got invited on a ton of these types of podcasts in one week. The next week I lost $980,000 in business. I lost two speaking gigs in the Gulf and I don't even think it was anti-Semitism. I think they just don't want the controversy. I don't think they want me on stage in Dubai or Abu Dhabi and talking about Israel. I think I, I'm, I'm calling on their better angels. I don't even think it was necessarily anti-Semitism. They're like, this is just so hot, so emotional. We, Scott, we'd like you to talk about young men, or we'd like you to talk about TikTok. Or, you know. So they backed out, canceled contracts. I lost a, my biggest sponsor for my newsletter, and again, I don't think it was anti-Semitism. I just think that's like this is so hot and so emotional, and so many young people don't agree with you, Scott, that there are better places to put our money. So if you're an actor or a TV star or a writer or a producer or the CEO of a public company, I think your agents and the people around you are saying, "Yeah, no, we we know how we feel, we know, but you know, keep it to yourself, keep it to yourself." And young people, especially in media, have a disproportionate amount of power. It's young people that make shoe brands, consumer brands, retail brands, that go, actually go to the movies, that actually watch TV, that are very, very vocal on social media. They're, you know, Everyone's obsessed with people under the age of 30 for the right reasons. They kind of dictate the code and trends. And there's just no getting around it. You go on my f- social feeds. I've been called Professor Genocide. I mean I'm not I get some support. I get some support and I privately I get a lot of texts and emails from people who are very complimentary and appreciate the support. But oh my gosh, you get massive blowback. Massive. So if you're a young actor, if you're a CEO, if you're a high profile Jewish person who has what I'll call multicultural appeal in the media, your agent, your own instincts your accountant are all telling you, keep it to yourself right now. Keep it to yourself. Because, there, I mean, look at how many people, I want to say we have, look at how many Jews have really big platforms and aren't saying anything.
1: And maybe he's the biggest platform of all when you look at Mark Zuckerberg and the fact that he is completely silent after October 7th. I mean, we've seen him after a ski accident. We've seen him with his beef farm. There's nothing that he has been saying about this. Why? Can, can you think of why?
2: I think he Same could, reason? I think he could lose 200 million people from WhatsApp and his core platform overnight.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Young people, um, I mean, I don't know if you saw this Pew poll, but it came back that around half of people between the ages of 18 and 25 are supportive of Hamas. And so if you run the biggest platform in the world with two billion people, and you disproportionately over-index young, and you're trying to build products, I mean, and again, I don't, I don't think it's fair to call on individuals. People have the right to speak out. They also have the right to not speak out. So I think it's unfair. I, 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 was, I know a couple of CEOs of investment banks, and I'm like, what? And I've said to them personally, I'm like, how come I haven't, you haven't said anything on this? And I thought, that's not fair. Just as no one has the right to tell me to shut up, I don't think I have the yeah. right to, t- to to tell people, oh, you're Jewish, you have an obligation to speak up. And I feel it, but I don't think you can call people out
0: for it. So this point about the generational divide could mean you go one of two ways about when you contemplate the future. Either you think... Look, young people now are in the position you've described, but young people move on. They'll get, they become old for one thing and there'll be a new issue. They'll become something else that interests them. It's okay because don't worry. All the CEOs and the Joe Biden's, they're all still in place and they feel the way you've described. Or you say right now, a few, you know, 50 plus boomer plus CEOs and captains of industry and Joe Biden are holding the line but this has really got three, four, five, maybe 10 years to run. And then it's all going to be swept away by the TikTok generation, the Columbia University generation, who see this completely differently. And therefore, if we're having this conversation in 20 years time, it will be a global consensus that Israel is not just Goliath, but actually, you know, uh, the, the, the global pariah. Which of those two paths, one is, you know, from your point of view, optimistic, one pessimistic. This generational divide leads you To which one of those two outcomes do you think?
2: Well, you're doing what the Chinese do, Jonathan. You're thinking long term, right? And that's what we need to do because there's the glass half empty view and the glass half full if you're someone who believes that Israel will always be the outpost, the the light on a shining hill for democracy in the Middle East. And I believe that and that is the negative view is that the people who supported it in the west and it would be very hard for to imagine israel having a long-term future if it doesn't maintain real support in the united states right now that support you could argue in terms of what matters is steadfast this happens the biden administration immediately commissions and orders two carrier strike forces to the gulf and it's clear why they are there and i think biden i actually think the biden administration has has really come through In my view, their messaging is bad. I think they're subject to the same uh, misperceptions as much as American media is. But the bottom line is I think they have basically said to all the other enemies, don't even think about it. Hamas was trying to inspire a multi-front war, and I think those two carrier strike forces that can deliver the violence of the U.K., France, and Germany combined with these two carrier strike forces. People don't realize just how the reason we spend— the UK spends 55 billion on its military, the US spends 800 billion. And the reason we one of the reasons we do that is we have mobile delivery capabilities the likes of with we we can take the fifth largest economy's military in the world and deliver it somewhere in a matter of 10 days as long as it takes an aircraft carrier strike force to get there. And I think it's a really powerful deterrent to cauterize this from becoming a national or a regional conflict. So I, I, I think the Biden administration and the people in power right now are on Israel's side. In 10 or 20 years, as this generation, unless this generation does like a, not a 180, but a 120 on the issue. And, may, and you know, things happen as you get older, right? Who knows? But it, it does not look good long-term for Israel as it relates to the West support. Now, ironically, I would argue that the most hopeful thing I have spent a decent, one of the wonderful things I love about living in London is I've spent a bunch of time in the Gulf. I have found that the Gulf, at least when I'm in the kingdom, in Bahrain and Qatar, I have actually found, I believe they are pivoting towards capitalism. And I do believe, and I'm hopeful that the kingdom will at some point, sooner than people think, normalize relations with Israel. I think that they're are moving away from what I'll call Islamism or whatever you would wanna, however you would wanna dictate or brand their past. And I think they're moving towards capitalism. And it's an anecdotal observation, but I was in Mykonos this summer. I used to go to Mykonos a lot. You go to these clubs, it's all golf kids now. It's all golf kids. And I think the young up and coming powerful in the Gulf have decided they're kind of turning left. I think they're pivoting towards the West. And rather than going all the way to san jose for technology i think of the two largest economies normalized relations which i think the kingdom would like to do that'll be the equivalent of the most impenetrable iron dome for israel so while the west's perception tomorrow's leaders are not as pro-israel as in the past and that has real implications for the future of israel and we need to be mindful of it i'm equally hopeful that many of the actors in the middle east actually see long-term benefit and prosperity from normalizing relations with Israel.
1: I mean, if after everything we've gone through in 2023, there's actually a prospect of normalization with Saudi Arabia. At least there's a little bit of a glimmer of hope. And in the future, I do want to ask about, like specifically more about college campuses, because after everything we've seen, obviously after the congressional hearings of the heads of, of Harvard and Penn and MIT, a crisis is al- also an opportunity. It could have been an opportunity for this recalibration to reset. I mean, you've obviously been very critical of, of uh, uh, campuses in general, for all kinds of reasons. I thought for a moment it might be a good, you know, point of of change, that they would actually ask themselves questions and maybe change course. It doesn't really seem to be happening. And I wonder what should be done in that regard, in in the campuses themselves.
2: I think actually, I I think it is happening.
1: Okay,
2: Um, I'm very involved in University of California, Berkeley, and UCLA. And Every year, the alumni and donors get a letter from the chancellor. And for the past five years, the chancellor, you know, greetings from another beautiful day in the Berkeley Hills. We admitted the strongest freshman class in history, and and she would go on to talk about how these freakishly remarkable kids choose Berkeley. And it would always end with the same thing. It would always end with, and also, this is the most diverse class ever. And that's a good thing the academic gap between black and white was double what it was between rich and poor 60 years ago giving people a leg up based on race affirmative action just made sense where it came off the tracks was we started saying okay now let's revisit the past and kind of get into in a very reductive way oppressor versus the oppressed and it's kind of come off the rails and i think people students and faculty see that this has gone too far and the thing that has fueled it is that universities have more from centers of excellence to kind of political indoctrination vehicles and also feel that like they should be social engineers. And I think people have said, no, we need to go back to where you're just cent- we're just centers of excellence. And you're even saying, for example, affirmative, race-based affirmative action was struck down. It's fine to let someone in or give them advantage because of adversity. But when you're at Harvard and you're only letting in 1,500 kids, the good news is 51% of the freshman class is non-white. That's a real victory. The bad news is that of those non-whites, 70% come from dual-income, upper-income households. So letting in a rich Indian kid is not diversity. So all we've done is reshuffle the elites of these universities. And the thing we don't talk about in terms of what's impacted universities is when you create a DEI department, they have to do something. And when you create a sustainability, an ESG, an ethics, a leadership, they have to do something. And the, the wonderful thing about these jobs is they have no accountability. Every day, we're not like other people. People have a tendency to believe that academics are much more noble. We're like everyone else. We're capitalists. We want to have good lives. Every day we wake up and we look in the mirror and we ask ourselves the same question. How do I increase my compensation while reducing my accountability? I know... I'll start something called the DEI Center, and I'll talk about the injustices that are really present, especially in the past and where they are now. There's no measurable outcomes. And if anyone criticizes what I'm doing and says that it's not helping kids establish the currency to build economic security and be leaders, which is what I believe we're supposed to do, I can call them a racist and some of it will stick. And so we have what I call FIPS, all these formerly important people that we pay two to $400,000 a year heading ethics departments. I can't get my 13-year-old to make his bed, but I'm supposed to teach a 27-year-old in business school how to be more ethical? I mean, it's just this self-aggrandizement and ability to create all these departments that need to do something such that – and by the way, these people are expensive and can never be fired because you're a racist if you fire them. They're impenetrable. They're invulnerable from any critique around, okay, what exactly are you doing? If you want more diversity, if you really were serious about diversity, equity, and inclusion in a place like Harvard, you take some of that $52 billion and you take the freshman class from 1,500 people, which is what a good Starbucks serves every day, and you'd expand it to 15,000. And you'd let in more trans kids, more black kids, more LGBTQ, more white kids from Appalachia. You'd let in just more And we wouldn't have these heated emotional conversations around who should get advantage and who doesn't because it's a misdirect. The answer isn't who gets in. The answer is how many get in. But instead, we're going to create an LVMH proxy called a university, and it'll make us the alumni feel great because the value of their degree goes up. I like bragging that I'm at NYU and hearing about all my friends' kids can't get in, but I teach there, right? It makes us all feel really important and it creates hostility and resentment and then we have all of these bs departments and administrators that are overpaid that results in an in insurmountable student debt who think big thoughts and talk about all the injustice of the past and dei and are very quick to call things racist and it's gotten to the point where the snake is eating its tail and this is the first time we've really seen it and i think people are smart people are cognizant of the fact that when you become, when you go on the hunt for fake racists, at some point, it reduces to this, this um, oppressor and oppr- uh, oppressed orthodoxy, and you end up with racism. You end up with racism. I think this is a big moment. I think universities are doing a lot of soul searching right now. And you, I believe you've seen peak DEI and peak ESG, because people realize, while it started with good intentions, it has ended up creating the exact, it's like Sarah say at the end of Game of Thrones, she becomes the person, she becomes the ideology, the violence, the oppression that she was trying to counter. And I think we're having that recognition at universities. Mm-hmm.
0: DI being diversity, equity and inclusion, ESG environmental social goals. As for Game of Thrones, I can't help you. That will have to be your need. Um, I want to just do um a very this probably will have to be our last question, but we talked before about what the long-term of impact of this generational shift and campus, etc., might be. Super long term. Just to go very short term, 2024 election year. A lot of people are worried about Joe Biden and his prospects for a whole variety of reasons, but one of them is the exit of young people from his coalition that in 2020 they went for him over trump in very big numbers the polling says that is not going to be repeated as things stand right now for a whole variety of reasons and gaza and the the israel hamas war is is offered as one of the reasons why young people are breaking from Joe Biden. Again, do you think, you know, you have a feel for this because of your uh, contact with campus life and that generation uh, in college. What do you think? Is this something passing? Or do you think come November, they are going to stay away or vote for the third party, Cornell West or someone else? And could that actually be this phenomenon you've been describing in this conversation could actually determine the 2024 election?
2: It's just so odd. And I, you probably have a better perspective than me because I'm just too close to it. But what's strange is the war in Ukraine, Israel's long-term prospects, you know, basically the fate of the world kind of rests in the hands, of, you'd argue, of a couple hundred thousand soccer moms in Michigan, Wisconsin. I mean, the media would likes to pretend there's a race going on and that these states matter. They don't. There's only five states that matter. And there's really only about 11 counties that matter. California's already voted. New York, South Dakota, Texas, they've already voted. We know where they're going. And it's just a small number of kind of ex-urban soccer moms, for lack of a better term, who will decide who is president. This whole conflict in the Middle East has really made some strange bedfellows. I consider myself center-left politically. This has taken me pretty quickly center-right. I find the far left on this issue, I just, I can't, I can't. It has made me question the Democratic Party like I have never questioned it before. I do think that Biden's support of Israel, I believe that that eventually the truth bubbles up. The truth has a nice ring to it. And the wonderful thing about Hamas is that over time, people will observe their actions and pay closer attention as they are now and notice things and notice, okay, when Salma Hayek and Julia Roberts, on the red carpet and can, were holding up signs saying, bring our girls home from Boko Haram." Well, there's 20 girls being held underground right now. Where are the fucking signs, ladies? It, it, when you see the Houthis that are associated kind of with this moment, and, and someone actually interprets their flag, and the, the flag says, God is great, death to America, death to Israel. We have the benefit that over time, Hamas and what has gone on here, the truth will bubble up. I also believe that over the long term, while, while people are very empathetic and get angry over short-term conflict, I do think voters respect strength. And I believe that actually the Middle East, many of these nations respect in a quiet way kind of Israel's response. I think they respect strength. And I think American voters will, I'm hoping, will see that Biden was resolute here and showed real strength. That's what I'm hoping. In terms of the election, it is just so strange what is going on. We had the Iowa caucus last night. There's some very weird things happening in America. Over half of the Republican voters were over the age of 65. Our nation is being run by old people right now, much less the candidates. I mean, it's it's just so strange. Now, young people turning out who they vote for Cornell West has no shot. The the candidate that might create the unintended consequence we weren't expecting is RFK Jr. People just don't and people can't figure out is he gonna is he good or bad for which candidate? And will he get the kind of traction he'll get? So this is this is gonna be a strange year. I just don't if if Biden slips and falls and it's on camera, his candidacy is probably over. But at the same time, Trump could be sentenced to prison. And people, only 7% of the Republican base says they would not vote for him if he were sentenced. And you think, well, wow, that's amazing. His base is that hardened. If he loses 7%, he can't win. So we're dealing with third-party candidates, a president who has a 7 to 9%, act, according to actuarial tables, of dying every year. These people are just too old. It's, it's insane we have these people running for president. And then another guy who might be sentenced to prison. And then a series of third candidates. So you know, who the hell knows? I, can, I can't figure this out. There's too, many, there's too many moving parts here.
1: Jonathan said this might be our last question, but I have to disagree with him and just ask one more <laughs> small one. We talked a lot about Judaism or about, I think, anti-Semitism. You, you said uh, on a different podcast that this crisis made you shift your part-time uh, Jewish status to full-time. Is that what you feel?
2: I'm no more religious than I ever was. I believe at some point I'm gonna look into my kid's eyes and know our relationship is coming to an end. I'm I'm what I call a devout atheist. And I see it as a sign of strength. At the same time, you know, I recognize that, you know, my mother was a four-year-old Jew living in London when the Blitz broke out. And had it not been for, you know, a 17-mile stretch of water, Russian blood, British brains, and American brawn, you know, her life would have ended with a train ride. So to not nod. To good people and Israel, uh, and pay just a tiny bit back, in my view, would not, you know, would be a total lack of recognition around the dangers that face my mother. In addition, there's been a chill on my business. I have a small business and we're losing revenue. And there's a bit of a chill. Do I have the right to be politically active and put other people in my company's economic security at risk? I mean, this brings up a host of issues, right? So I can selfishly uh, indulge myself in my own political views. Uh, when I'm not a geopol. My, my podcasts aren't really, I talk about geopolitics, but that's kind of not why people come to me. They come to me for economics and tech and other things. So I'm, I'm struggling with this stuff. And where I end up is the following, and it's what Sam Harris said. If you have economic security, which I do have, I got very lucky I have economic security. I can't be canceled economically, at least I don't think so. If you have people who love you unconditionally, which I would like to thank, then you have an obligation to speak out. And I haven't spoken out on anything important my whole life. I haven't. I have been I have been woefully non-courageous and non-philanthropic. Every question in action through my life up until very recently has been, how do I get more money, more women, more status, more fame? Fucking me, me, me. And th- You know, this was an opportunity to finally say, okay, you know the history. I think I have a sense for what's going on here. I have a platform. You know, it's just overdue for me. So it has brought me into the fray. It it has brought me to a a viewpoint that I think is supportive of Israel. And, you know, just from a self-preservation standpoint, I don't know about you guys, I never in my life considered at some point me and my family might have to move to Tel Aviv. Like, I just would have thought that was a one-in-a-million chance. If this shit continues to spin out of control, like, at some point, is the only safe place uh, Tel Aviv? I mean, it's, it's unlikely, but at a minimum, just for self-preservation, it feels like, well, Israel and a certain level of support for Jews has to survive, So for me, this is just sort of an awakening to finally kind of doing the right thing and using my platform for something I believe in. But it hasn't, I wouldn't call this a a reawakening of my religious roots. This is just what I think is finally finally having the backbone and the, the sack to do what's right. Scott
0: Galloway, thanks so much for talking to us on Unholy. Thank you, and thanks for your good work.
1: Thank you, Scott.
0: Well, that man can certainly talk. Wow, that was uh, a tour de raison. It was a tour de force. He's so direct, such a compelling speaker, and I thought pretty courageous. I mean, that point he was very candid with us that he has lost business. I mean, he put a figure on it, sums of money, downloads mm-hmm. g- going down right. um, because he believes of his stance on this conflict. That is, that is amazing. You know, sobering to hear that, and and really very striking.
1: And, and, and that he's saying, you know, where are the Jews? Where are the Jews who should be speaking up? And I mean, he was very, I think, delicate with saying, I don't want to call out specific people, but people who do have, you know, a backing, do, do have support, don't need to worry about losing their next paycheck. Why aren't they talking? I mean, that was a, a very powerful, I think uh, all of his, um, you know, what he thinks about this, this uh, crisis and what has been going on. He said he, he was called uh, a prof genocide. Take, yeah. a take off of Prof G. I mean, that is amazing. Yeah. Just the reactions to his, um, to, to what he has been saying.
0: Yeah. I mean, he's, he's such an unusual figure because he obviously has this, you know, involvement in business and in tech and in industry. So he's got his ear close to the ground. He's talking to CEOs, but he also has another ear very close to the ground of campus life and the uh, debate uh, in, in American colleges. He sits in London, yet he's obviously in touch with the US. He just spans a whole horizon. I mean, t- t- a comparison I'm sure has not never been made before. Listeners, regular listeners know of my absolute obsession with the work of Amos Oz. I interviewed him, as you've reminded me, when I was very young, and it was only two or three years after the Lebanon War in the mid-80s. And he said to me, uh, when I put to him, you know, the, the, the arguments that were raging then, he said, I have news for your listeners. Israel is not a Christian country. Do not expect Israel to be the one Christian country in the world. Wow. you know? Um for nearly 40 years later, Scott Galloway saying, I think people think Israel have to be the last Christians. Uh, oh. That uh, leapt out at me as well, in amongst a whole lot of- oh, A whole lot of uh, other things about uh,
1: TikTok, uh, about China, the People's Republic of China, specifically, you know, picking on this issue and pushing that algorithm so as to create a divide in the United States. There was so much uh, in, in yeah. what he said, as always, just yeah. so fascinating to have him on. Uh, time for our mention and chutzpah categories, which, as we said, we are begun to in a hesitant way bring back. I want to talk to you, uh, Jonathan, about uh, really a remarkable woman uh, named Ruma Kedim. She's from Nir Oz. Her entire family, essentially her entire family, was murdered on October 7th. Her daughter Tamar, Tamar's husband Johnny, and their three children, Arbel, Shachar, and Omer, all of them murdered. And she was in the kibbutz. It was actually a coincidence. The Minister of Defense, Yoav Galant, came to visit and she spoke with him. And it was very hard to hear her in the beginning because she her voice was, you know, it was very hard for her to speak. But then she finally said to him, where were you? Where were all of you? Why didn't you protect us? Which is the one sort of salient question that Israelis are asking. But I'm sort of putting her in this men's category because just right before she met with the defense minister in this footage that we the Channel 12 uh, aired this week, she also met with uh, religious leaders, with Muslim religious leaders and with Christian religious leaders, and she told them, this is a woman whose whole family was murdered. And she said to them, we have to believe in peace. We have to somehow, uh, know that there is a better future. I don't know how she is able to do that. I don't know what kind of strength you can find in your eighties when your family has disappeared, has been really eliminated and what kind of courage, what kind of power this woman has. Um, so, so that is, um, that is the story I wanted to tell you, uh, uh, this week.
0: It reminds me of our conversation with Rachel goldberg Pollin, The people who are in the hardest situation, suffering the most pain, somehow have this capacity for for generosity, for empathy, for vision, and they're extraordinary people. And as we've noted several times, many of them are women and they are are remarkable. So a worthy winner of our Mensch Award. I'm afraid uh, we may be at the opposite end of the spectrum for our Chutzpah Awards. I thought we would mention well, there are a couple of vying candidates. One might be a political activist by the name of Manolo de los Santos, who spoke at the People's Forum in New York City, made a speech that has gone, a, a clip of it has gone round the world, perhaps not in the way he might have wanted, in which he says, when we finally deal that final blow to destroy Israel, when the state of Israel is finally destroyed and erased from history, that will be the single most important blow we can give to destroying capitalism. You know, It's a view, but my word, Um, talking about erasing from history, erasure, it's a bit much. And uh, talking about, you know, uh, erasing the only Jewish country in the world. Um, you've got to worry about where that's coming from. But I think the probably the winner is the, is the group, and again, it's in New York City, again a clip actually that's been seen quite, quite a lot on social media, a group of anti-Israel protesters targeting uh, New York's Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre and Paediatric Hospital over uh, what it alleges are links with Israel, calling it complicit in genocide, They were outside the hospital. There were in the pictures you can see children, children with cancer, in the windows of the hospital, and the protesters outside say, "Make sure they they hear you." They're in the windows, pointing upward at the children. So these are children being treated for cancer in New York City, and outside a mob accusing, well, shouting that the hospital is complicit in genocide and saying, "Make sure they hear you." They're in the windows. So those, I think, are two potential bids for Chutzpah of the week. Um, You can find those clips, I'm sure. Um, And we just have to um, say our thank yous.
1: Thank yous to um, Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, Omer Barak, and we shall see each other next week, Jonathan.
0: See you next week.